Welcome to the New Money Habits Podcast, where we talk about how to create a better plan for your money so you don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. Here are your hosts, Sarah Jones and Nino Villa. Welcome back, Budgeteers. Coach Nino Villa here alongside me, my partner on the airways, as always. It's Sarah Jones. And we have again with us today, Kelly Kellum, who is uh, continuing the conversation with us as we unpack choosing. Uh, college for kids and paying for it and saving on it. And so uh, we're going to dive back into that conversation again today. But before we do that, got to check in with my co-host, Sarah. See, Sarah, where are you and what type of shenanigans are you up to? <laughs> um, shenanigans? That's, geez, what you're making me out to be some crazy person here, Nino. Um <laughs> Good to be back again. Kelly, welcome. Uh, happy to have you here. Um, we are in a little town in northern Wyoming called Thermopolis. And um, <clears throat> they have, um, it's actually the world's largest mineral hot springs here. Um, and so little town. Um, some old family friends uh, live here and I haven't seen them for many years. So we're hanging out at their house uh, for the week. So um, nice to be around, you know, familiar people, um, good conversation, good connection, and also um, getting out of the hustle and bustle of big city life. I can appreciate getting out of the hustle and bustle uh, and just kind of unplugging. That would be incredible. Um, I wanted to uh, re-invite Kelly to uh, the program. Kelly, um, for our listeners who may not have caught the first episode, Kelly is a college admissions and funding strategist, and she helps families and college-bound students get into the right fit college so they can save an average of $80,000 and uh, make it so that going to college doesn't break the family budget. Welcome back, Kelly. And why don't you uh, let our listeners know a little bit more about you? Well, thank you so much, Sarah and Nino. I'm glad to be back. I love to work with families of college-bound students because so many people don't know that there is another way to do it besides applying to the known colleges and then having to figure out how to take out loans or whatever else they have to do to pay for college. So I actually got started with this uh, back when I was an English teacher and was working with college-bound students and working with our college uh, counselors. But then also many years ago with my oldest stepdaughter, who we were trying to figure out how to pay for her to go to Purdue. She's now long since graduated, but I've uh, been through it as a parent also recently, just sent off a student again to college a few weeks ago. So I'm definitely in the trenches with the parents. And I just really, my heart is with finding families who need this help, need this guidance. And that's essentially what I do. I help them all the way through the process. Well, we're absolutely uh, thrilled and excited to have you. Um, as our listeners may or may not know, this this topic is dear and near and dear to my heart. Uh, working for a for profit university for as long as I did, um, I had a an, an affinity for 
uh, financial aid. And when I mean financial aid, I don't mean just federal student aid, student loans from the government. It was, to your point, like, how do we pay for college and how do we find ways to save and all of those different things? And so I'm so excited to have that conversation today because I think when we talk about ways to save on college, there's a couple of different places you could start. But today we've decided we're going to start by talking about the right fit college. And so Kelly, tell us a little bit about why, what, what do we mean by right fit college and how does that help us save when paying for college? Absolutely, Nino. Uh, the right fit college is a term that usually I find parents hadn't really thought about because that's not what the college counselors, the high school college counselors talk about. Right fit college really means that the college has the college is a good fit for your student based on their personality, their learning style, and also your family budget. And, and I always think that the conversation starts with the budget, as we talked about last time. But it also, uh, really, you have to look at how is your student going to fit into this college? And is that college going to be the best, the best one for your student? And that, you know, I don't know how that you feel about this, Sarah, but I think that that is probably, other than the budget conversation, the next place that people need to look. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be honest, we didn't really talk about that when when my kids were, you know, going to school, uh, you know, and, and looking at different colleges. They they looked at, you know, the programs that were offered, you know, so they were looking for colleges that had the the programs that they were interested in, you know, and the, the, um, majors and everything that they wanted, uh, to pursue. And they also looked at location, you know, getting away from home. <laughs> um, both of my kids, you know, that's, that's, um, one went a little bit farther than the other one did, but, um, you know, my son actually, I don't want to say he followed his best friend, but him and his best friend chose, you know, the same college that was just far enough away from home that they felt like adults but close enough that, you know, they could come home on the weekends or, or what have you. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, and my daughter chose to like get farther away, uh, because she wanted some more of that independence. But what we didn't talk about and what, frankly, the topic was never brought up for us is, you know, how do the kids' personalities fit into these schools, you know, and, and is the school really a right fit for their personalities? Um, and, and, um, their, you know, desired, uh, um, you know, cultures and everything, right? And 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 um, what they really wanted to learn outside of the classroom, right? And so I mm -hmm. appreciate having this conversation because it's not something that was done when my kids were headed off. Well, and to your point, the whole thing about location, that definitely factors into it. And, and I don't mean just, are we wanting to be in the mountains or are we wanting to be, you know, where it's hot or cold or whatever, or near, near water, or whatever. Those things factor into it too, but those things don't make or break a school. Location can be as simple as, okay, I do not want to be out in a rural area. I had a student say that to me recently. And yet when we looked at some of the best fit schools for his personality, his learning style, and his major, one of them turns out to be in a rural area, but not far from a larger town. But it also, you know, some students just really want to, as they're growing into that adulthood, 
they really want to be in the downtown area. That would not be the place for some other students. Uh, some kids would, would feel a little lost there and maybe need to be out in the suburbs. You know, and another, another side of this really is, you know, when we talk about their personality, I was talking with a family the other day, and this comes up a lot, where the student said, you know, I'm, I don't really like to go up and talk to the teachers. I don't know how I'd feel about having to go stand in a line maybe outside the, the professor's office at office hours and be waiting in line to, to ask my question. I don't know if I'd want to go to a, another uh, open tutoring session in the evenings where somebody who had been through my class was reteaching it basically for the people who had questions. Uh, those students don't belong in a school where there's 40,000 students or 30,000 students and they're going to have large classes. Those students belong in a school that is a little smaller where the student to teacher ratio is a little, is a little smaller as well. And I think that's something that parents don't think about as much. Uh, Nino, I know you have a young daughter coming up the pike. Have you guys discussed that in terms of her learning style? Not yet. Um, she's in eighth grade and she's 13. And, and so it's definitely something that, um, is bubbling up to the surface. But I will tell you that as you're talking about this, this right fit, um, I, I have done some mentorship of high school students through my church in the past. And I remember thinking to myself, because we're kind of outside of the, the Phoenix city limits and we're in an area that uh, up until recently was very agricultural. Uh, I mean, we had a cotton farm just a half a mile away from mm. us on this side and an onion farm uh, less than a quarter of a mile away from us on this side. And I didn't even know you could grow onions in Arizona, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is here we had some students who going to the local high school had very different um, desires for what their college experience was going to look like. Some of them, to your point, wanted to go to ASU and be in a very urban, very populated, very hustle and bustle. And, and they kind of thought, hey, I think I'll do better in a large lecture hall and having some of that independence and some of that on me. While others, to your point, were like, no, I need kind of this smaller environment. I need, I need my classes not to have more than like maybe 30 other students mm -hmm. in it or whatever. And so um, while Right Fit can start with the program, because the other thing about Arizona I, again, I didn't know you could grow all this stuff out here is these kids learn agriculture in in high school. And so some of the colleges around here also teach that. And so they want to go to that college because it offers that program. But it also happens to offer the right student to professor ratio and that sort of thing. While others want to break out of that and they want they want to get out of the small town and they, they want to experience the largeness of life and all of those different things. and so. You know, growing up in the same area, very different personalities, needing very different things yes. in their college experience. Well, I, I agree with that 100%. And the other side of that is uh, when I talk with, yes, let's go back and say, yes, the program is very, very important. When I talk about Right Fit College, I'm also looking at 
What's the size of their major? For example, I was talking with a student who wanted to go to University of North Carolina, and he's in North Carolina, so it made sense for him to look at University of North Carolina. But again, there were 35,000 students or 27,000, depending upon which campus you were looking at. And he was wanting to major in a field of engineering. And when I looked at what they actually offered, his particular area was the largest major in the engineering field, in the engineering department. And then I looked at how many students were in that department. And it looked like he was going to be, if we factored out some some math to project what his class size might be, he was going to be in a class of 350 people majoring in that particular subject. When you start talking about that, it's very difficult. And I'm going to use the word you did, bubble to the top. It's very difficult to bubble to the top to get the attention of the professors to maybe get recommended for some of the best internships or the best job opportunities or the best projects. That's what it takes to get the really good jobs. So if we're looking at ROI, return on investment, because we are talking about how to pay for college here too, uh, how to save money on college, we're not necessarily getting the best return if our student doesn't get all of those opportunities. And I'm not saying that students should all go just to the smaller schools so that they have more opportunities. But I think parents have to consider, is my student going to be up a, against a lot of competition? And is my student even going to thrive in a competitive environment? We also look at things like, are there a lot of internships around that area? Is even if it's a rural school, is there an area nearby where they can go out and get internships and jobs and, and be able to commute on a regular basis? A lot of in this area, a lot of students uh, like to go to schools near the Quad Cities or near Chicago or down near Springfield in Illinois and Iowa, because they do have those opportunities then. Hmm. So, uh, you know, to your point, you know, it's, it's definitely a factor in terms of what they, they have to look at. Yeah. And I love that you brought that up to, for, for this perspective. And that is sometimes we, we fail to see the forest through the trees. And, and what I mean by that is, I hear engineering and I automatically think of Silicon Valley, right? And it's like, oh, well, then maybe I should be going to um, a university in that area for all those internships. And, and then it's like, okay, well, or maybe Seattle. But what's interesting is there are a lot of tech companies coming to the greater Phoenix area. And so, like, there are two big players in the um, – in the autonomous vehicle area, right? And I, but they're here in Phoenix. So imagine instead of going and putting yourself into the the huge abyss that is Silicon Valley and, and being one of hundreds, if not thousands, of engineers vying for position in in your uh, your class and in uh, opportunities for internships, finding another area where 
tech is building up that you might not even be aware of and saying, hey, you know what? I might actually mm -hmm. head out to Arizona and study engineering there and maybe have a better opportunity because class sizes might be smaller. I might not be up against as much um, competition. So you're, you're, you just helped me to open my eyes to, wait a minute, you know what? Like, look around and, 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 and consider where you might have more opportunity because fewer people are doing it. Definitely. And the other thing that factors into the learning opportunity, the learning style, and one of the things I always look for in a college when I'm helping students look for their best fit college, I'm always looking for uh, opportunities for assistance for the student. And I mean, educational assistance. I mentioned earlier that maybe a school has something where somebody uh, teaches a review session at night after school, after all the classes have, have closed for the day. And that way the students who maybe just didn't quite catch something in class and didn't have an opportunity to go talk to the professor can go and ask questions, hear it explained again. I look for that in colleges. I also look for uh, colleges that maybe have some success coaching. We all know that that freshman year, especially if you're going away to school, that freshman year can be very hard. It is a transition. Even if you're you're a commuter, which I was when I was in college, there were times that I didn't quite understand how to do something and there was nobody around for me to talk to, especially since I didn't have friends in a dorm. I spent very little time on on campus. So to have those drop-in opportunities or to have a success coach on campus that you can call and say, hey, who should I talk to about this? I need some help. Uh, there are also colleges that actually coach students in executive functioning skills. Those, for those who aren't familiar with that term, those would be things like planning your time effectively. Uh, who do you keeping a calendar properly? Because let's face it, even as adults, sometimes we have a hard time with that. And then, you know, it's simple as, you know, learning how to back time a back back reverse engineer a project. If you've got a project and it's due, you know, in two months and you know, you have different stages that you have to accomplish. How do you reverse engineer that to set your own deadlines? Those are executive functioning skills. And let's face it, some schools even go as far as helping you learn how to get up and get out of the dorm on time. So if I know I have a student who needs those, I'm looking for that also when I'm helping them look for the best fit college. So, Sarah, I know you said that your students, your two kids went to college um, earlier and but didn't really take that into consideration would something like that have been helpful for them? Absolutely. And, you know, as, as we're having this conversation, I'm kind of, my brain's been headed back in time, right? And, and remembering um, some of the steps that we took and some of the conversations that we had. And, you know, um, talking about that, my son, his um, first year in college, um, he went to, UW University of Wyoming and they have a good engineering program he wanted to be an electrical engineer that was his you know um desired um 
area of, you know, career and things that he wanted to work on and with a minor in computer engineering. And what we didn't ask and what we didn't really look into was, you know, kind of that success coaching or, you know, um, even how often do the advisors meet with, with, um, the students? Because, um, I'm just going to say he was kind of set up that, that freshman year to fail. Um, and I say that because, um, he took 24 credits, um, that first, yeah. And, and that was way too much, you know, for him. And, and then it just kind of felt like everything kind of snowballed and, and, you know, and I think that's really kind of one of the impacts of maybe picking the wrong school. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that school specifically, but we didn't really look at some of these other factors and what could be the right fit for him and, and where do we need to be encouraging him and, and where are the, th- the areas that we need to look at that are going to help the students really succeed. And likewise, my daughter, she did pick <laughs> ASU partly to get away from home. Right. But, um, also to, um, uh, she knew that ASU, there's a lot of opportunities for internships. She's going into the medical field. Right. And turns out that she now works at a hospital part-time in the Phoenix area. So she's, um, you know, the experience and the, the, the opportunities around the school, um, were one of the factors that helped her choose ASU. So I love that we're having this conversation because I've seen it on both sides, right? The the good fit, you know, for my daughter and the wrong fit for my son. Well, and you brought up the impacts, which is really important. And I, I think that people don't understand that something like 30% of students don't come back after their second year of college. And usually the reason is either it wasn't a good fit or they can no longer afford it because they didn't make that proper decision to begin with. And we're going to get into in a second about why the best fit college helps you pay for college. But some other impacts are, you know, the freshmen really, it's hard enough, but then you put them into an environment where it turns out they're not really that comfortable. And it becomes, like you said, they're set up for failure or they don't have the, the ability to, to really settle in educationally as well as socially and they want to come home or they decide that they need to change their major. 50% of colleges, uh, I mean, 50% of college students change their major now, which is why there are colleges and I specifically look for them for students who are maybe on the fence about a particular major, there are a lot of colleges now that don't let you declare, officially declare your major until the end of your freshman year. And they want you to do some career exploration and they've set it up in such a way that you still graduate on time at some schools. Now, the other impact, and this is one of the, the, slightly more controversial things, conversations that I have with parents is that the big schools, you often have to stay another semester or year or two years. Right now at the big public universities, it's taking six years on average for students to get through their degree. 
Some of that is because they can't get their classes because there are so many students. Some of it is because they change majors middle of the, of their college career and have to take a bunch of new classes. I did that. Fortunately for me, my new major was in the same school. And so a lot of the work that I'd already done counted toward my major, but it, it really and truly can derail your ability to pay for college all the way through. So then you have students leaving after four years who still have work to do and they have to do that while they're trying to work full time, which is extremely difficult to do at a large university because a lot of those classes are only offered during the day. Well, that's true of any college. But we go back to what we were talking about with uh, having to compete and having to compete for opportunities. Those very large schools, not only do you pay for six years usually instead of four, but if the opportunities aren't there for your student, is it really going to be the right fit? Whereas if you go to the smaller school or even a private school, private schools, you almost always get out in four years. A lot of those schools actually have a vested interest in getting you through in four years uh, for a variety of reasons. But the other controversial thing is that you usually, if you go to a private school, you usually end up paying somewhat similar amounts of money by the time the degree actually is in your student's hand. And I do have a hard time helping parents sometimes see that. Uh, you know, you, you've got some experience in the financial aid department. Did you ever run into that challenge? Yeah. So working for a for-profit private university, right? The, we were the competition or the public schools were our competition of, mm -hmm. oh, but the, the credit per hour is so much cheaper there and blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, as you said, it was comparable. What you were going to invest in a degree here is about the same as what you were going to invest in a degree there. But it came with a lot of differences. Um, the experience, for one, would just be different uh, from top to bottom. But I think, <clears throat> excuse me, not only is it uh, that a private uh, education could be about the same as a public education dollar-wise, I think there's this other thing that happens at the college level that I just really makes me scratch my head. And that is the idea that, um, that you need to go to the name brand school. And that if you don't go to the name brand school, I'm telling you right now, as somebody who worked in that industry for 10 years, which means I didn't just work for a university, but I worked closely with um, employers to, to determine what were employers looking for as a result of um, students with a degree, because there's a certain level of expectation. If you have a degree in marketing, you should know, and not only just know, actually be able to do certain things. Uh, and so I'm here to tell you right now that unless, and this is the world of, according to Nino, so there's room for error here, but unless you are going to be a surgeon, a lawyer, or an engineer, outside of those three professions, 
it doesn't much matter where you went to school. And so it, it, it circles back to the right fit and just, just find the right fit for your student, regardless of the name on the building, because that experience and, and is going to be so much uh, more important. But yeah, there's this big myth in my, in my view, a big myth about got to go to the name brand school. I got to go somewhere where everybody knows their name. And it's no, I, I, I don't think that that's true at all. You have absolutely hit on one of my passions here is helping to helping parents understand that it does not matter where their student goes. Like you said, unless there's a very specific field and even within engineering, uh, depending upon, I mean, if we're talking bioengineering, bioengineering or biomedical engineering, yeah, there are specific areas where you need to go because it's a newer field and not everybody has the, the built up program. However, if we're talking mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, there are 50 schools across the country where your student can probably get the same education as long as they have the opportunities outside the classroom. I frequently, I mean, like every other conversation I have, talk to parents who tell me, well, I really want my student to go to, like you said, the school, you know, a school where everybody knows their name. I don't want them to go to a school nobody's ever heard of. They, everybody needs to know the name of the school. Or I want them to go to a Big Ten school. Or my student wants to go to a Big Ten school because they have good sports teams. They're not athletes. They just want to go to that school. And that's one of the worst reasons I can think of for picking a particular school. But they also say, well, you know, I, you know, I really want my student in one of the top universities, one of the best universities in the country. Well, they automatically think of Ivy League or top 10 schools, Duke University, uh, Brown, Cornell, University mm -hmm. of Chicago, right here in my area. I can tell you specifically, I went to one of the top schools in the country for my original major, which were for my major that I graduated with, which is public relations. It's the third ranked school in the country in that major. And it was San Jose State University. So it really doesn't matter what the name of the school is. We're looking for the program itself. And like I said, the fit for the student. And this is, this is something that I really, I really wish parents could understand that it doesn't matter where you go for the most part. Oh, by the way, there is a statistic out there that most CEOs, even in the tech field, most CEOs went to colleges no one ever heard of. So it really doesn't necessarily play into how you can advance in your college unless it's a very specific field. So Sarah, I know your kids chose their, their college based on their program, but when they were looking at college, colleges, how did you feel about the name of the college as a parent? You know, that played very little into it um, for us, you know, and, you know, I'll say both of my kids are gifted, um, right, you know, ranked very high in, you know, some test scores. And I know we're going to talk about that, you know, a little bit later on. Um, and so I will say some of their opportunities, you know, were that we, we had some more choices, um, you know, for them. 
And I encourage them to apply it a lot of different places because frankly, you just never know. Um, but just as a little side note, you guys might get a kick out of this, but, uh, we lived in a very small town and my daughter, one of the deciding factors for ASU was she was pretty convinced that she would not have to see anybody wearing cowboy boots anymore. (laughs) That was the one thing. (laughs) That was the one thing that, um, she (laughs) seems silly. She had her own, you know, and her thought behind that was I need to get out of the small town living. I want to be you know, exposed to more cultures and more people from different backgrounds, you know, and, and in her mind, that meant no more cowboy boots. And so, um, but, <laughs> which is hilarious, but the name of the school didn't really matter. And, and to be honest, had I really ever heard of ASU before? Probably not. You know, I, I, I can't remember, but it didn't ring a bell. It's not like, oh my gosh, she's going to ASU. It was, I'm proud of them no matter what. Um, but the name of the college for us played such a small, small part in it. Um, but I do know people and, and through each of their graduating classes, I heard other parents talking about it, you know, and, um, just from my own background, I was like, yeah, I don't really care about that. My goal was I want them to get a good education, right? I want them to be going because they want to go and because they, they, um, want to pursue, you know, higher education and, and they've got some desires, um, in life for, you know, their futures. So what do we need to do to help them get there? Um, and, you know, and, and just through their classes and listening to other kids in, you know, in high school, we started planning for that, you know, and, and that's where some of these conversations started taking place and, um, it was, uh, the name for us wasn't as big of a, um, uh, um, a deciding factor. Well, by the way, ASU is an outstanding school, it turns out. So she's in a great place. Uh, and if she wants to go into, into nursing, like you said, they're a great school for that. But you mentioned something else and you mentioned, uh, fi- you brought, brought us back to finding a way to get the good education and also pay for school and that it starts in, in high school. And that is really where it starts. You have to find that best fit for your student. And that, that really requires the student to understand who they are as a student and as a person, which is hard for a kid in high school. You know, I, I don't know too many teens who come right into high school knowing exactly who they are and what they want and where they're going, although there are some. But for the most part, students need some guidance. It starts in high school to figure out what classes they need to take to go in a specific area. It starts in high school understanding how they learn, what their best environment is, and then really figuring out where they see themselves, which is another toughie. But when it comes to that right fit school, the real, in addition to your student wanting to stay in school, thriving at that college and coming out with a really good opportunity to work in that field. The other side of it is that's that right fit school is how you pay for college. So when the school sees your student as somebody who is just perfect for their demographic, because every school really markets themselves to a specific type of student. The Ivies obviously market themselves to uh, a certain type of student. 
the UC system markets themselves to a similar type of student, but usually a type of student that's in California, first of all, but then a certain, um, each school has their own sort of niche. And then there are other colleges that are looking for your everyday student with the 3.5 GPA or the 3.0 GPA and moderate test scores. But Merit Aid, which a lot of people don't know about Merit Aid, Merit Aid is not the same as financial aid. Merit Aid is gift money that it's basically scholarships that the college gives your student for what they did in high school. It's not that financial federal, it's not that federal financial aid that you get by filling out the FAFSA, which is the federal, um, the free application for free application. federal student aid. Thank you. I can say <coughs> that every day. And yet today I'm not thinking of it, but yes, that is what the FAFSA is. So when your student is the right fit for that school and that school is the right fit for your student and they can tell and they want your student on their campus, they think that your student is uh, going to really contribute to their campus, they're willing to give money for your student to go there. And I say that I save an average of $80,000 per student. That usually happens when they're not going to a major public university because they don't have as much money to give to students. Although I've had students get $20,000 a year at a public university in terms of merit aid. But I also, you know, when, when I'm talking the private schools, I've seen students that aren't necessarily even top of their class or anywhere near it get $200,000 over four years. So that's the value of having that right fit. Uh, mm. What was your experience, Nino, on that? Because I know you worked on the financial side. Yeah, and I actually did want to clarify a couple of things just because I'm a word snob, right? So, mm -hmm. so federal student aid is one aspect of this overarching umbrella called financial aid. And so merit aid would technically be financial aid, but I knew what you meant, which is it's not coming from the federal government. So it's not federal student aid. And this is, that's the university employee coming out in me that's like, I got to get all the words right. Right. But, um, and the other thing I wanted to clarify is uh, for anybody who's listening to this episode and hadn't, heard you on our uh, our last episode with you, Kelly, this is assuming that your child even wants to go to college, right? We're kind of, right. this is going, when we say it starts in high school, we're saying we know, because we talked about college isn't the right path for everybody. And we did that on the last episode, but this is, okay, your child knows they want to go to college. So saving for college or saving on college begins mm -hmm. at, at the high school level. And so, yes, um, what I wanted to say about kind of merit aid and, and, and what I noticed, not only in the industry, but going back to my, my days as a mentor of high school students, is um, here locally, the, the, both the state and the private colleges in the greater Phoenix area and throughout the state of Arizona love to give away merit aid. Mm -hmm. They want kids who are from Arizona. I was talking earlier about how out here in Buckeye, uh, the high school is big into agriculture. Well, Northern uh, NAU, Northern Arizona University up in Flagstaff also has a great agricultural pro program. And they love to give merit aid 
to kids who went to high schools with agricultural programs. So mm-hmm. um, I don't remember if it was $4,000 a year or $8,000 a year, but one of the students was getting significant merit aid uh, from NAU for that. Um, and then on the private side, we have GCU nearby and everybody's all like, what? unless you're in Arizona, you're like, GCU, what's that? That's Grand Canyon University. It's a private Christian school. And another one of our students got, this is why I don't remember if it was four or 8,000. One of them got $4,000 a year. The other got $8,000 a year. I just don't remember which school it was, but they were both getting merit aid because of um, things like they were from Arizona. They studied certain things at the high school level. They did well in those areas. And so now we're going to give you merit aid for, uh, for that um, here at the, at the school level. And so, um, I, and, and with that, I wanted to circle back real quick to the name. The name doesn't matter. It dawns on me as we're having this conversation, unless you're regional to a school like GCU, I say GCU and most people are going to like, look at me like, what does that stand for? Right. Cause there's probably more than one. The truth of the matter. I also am originally from Buffalo and one of the a great school out there for business at the master's level is Canisius College. And I'm guessing most people don't know what a Canisius College is, right? <laughs> so out in Buffalo, in Western New York, people would be like, oh, you went to Canisius? That's such a great school. In California, they'd be like, you went where? Right? <laughs> so the, the name of the school, I just wanted to also add that as name of the school doesn't matter. And merit aid is such a big deal. Um, and I, I've seen it in action. Well, and thank you for clarifying what I meant by financial aid and federal aid, because mm-hmm. you're right. I just was not using the correct terms. But I agree with you on the merit aid. And yes, the local schools will give you, they will give money to people who are staying within the state. It's usually not a lot on the private school. I mean, I'm on the public school side. I mean, you're just talking, you're talking about $4,000, $8,000 a year that's not the same as $35,000, $40,000 a year that you can get at a private school. But it's still aid that is a certain percentage of that money that you have to pay to go to the state schools, which obviously ultimately costs less when you're looking just at the price tag. Mm -hmm. The difference with the private schools is you never pay full price for the most part. But uh, going back to this idea of uh, merit aid and how you earn it, most of the colleges, yes, they will give merit aid for staying local, especially if it's a state school. Even some of the private schools, there's an exchange that you can participate in within states. Iowa doesn't participate in it with any of the states. But for example, in Illinois, if you go to Wisconsin or you go to a school in Michigan, you can get exchange money. So you basically get a discount on going to college in a neighboring state. Not all the states participate in that, but that's considered merit aid. It's free money you don't have to pay back and it doesn't come from the federal government. But the the merit aid is usually based on three things. G, well, four things. GPA, test scores. A lot of times it's based on 
things like the leadership or the community service that your student did and, and demonstrated in high school. And sometimes it's based on things like some of the activities, like the band or being an orchestra or being on the speech team. If you're going to continue doing that in college, they may give you a little bit of money every year to do that. Sports, of course, is the biggest thing that we know of where students get scholarships, but not all colleges can give those scholarships. If they're a division three, they can't give a sports scholarship. But uh, this is the kind of thing that students can get merit aid for. Like you said, Nino, it goes back to planning in high school and making sure that you have the, the right classes for that particular major and the right, uh, the right GPA. So, but that's not to say that a student with a 3.2 GPA can't ever earn merit aid because they can at the right school. Hmm. So, uh, Sarah, did your students earn any merit aid at all? Or did you know about merit aid? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. So my son, when he went to UW, they were a neighboring college, right? A neighboring state of Colorado. And so, as you mentioned, there were discounts that he received because they participated in that program. So that was something, you know, that that he qualified for. Um, and he, I'll be honest, didn't apply for a lot of other things. <laughs> so he... um probably could have earned more, but he didn't apply for a lot of other, you know, and, and I think that's something that we can talk about too. You know, some things, you know, you need to apply for these scholarships and, and, um, you know, some of the institutional scholarships and, you know, some of the bigger scholarships, you know, you, you need to apply to them to receive them. And that's not something that he did a lot of. Um, my daughter, interestingly enough, applied for a lot of different um, grants and scholarships. She did receive some merit aid. And, you know, going back, it was so interesting that we look now because she was an out-of-state student. So resident of Colorado going to ASU received some merit aid because of that. Her test score, she tested very high in, um, you know, her ACTs and um, received that. But had she been an in-state student, she wouldn't have received that you know, um, uh, that, that merit aid. So her tuition actually would have worked out to be the same either way. So interesting. So here's where, you know, you really look at the numbers, you know, and what, um, colleges offer. Um, but you know, test scores definitely played a part with both of my kids. I think, you know, my son now, so my daughter sc scored high in her SATs. My son scored high in his ACTs, and they both, um, you know, received some merit aid simply because of that. Um, but it was something that we looked into, you know, um, from the very get go, you know, and and we talked about that as a family, you know, hey, testing. I know you don't like it, right? But take your time because this is going to help you if and when you decide to go um, to higher education. Well, and you raised two really good points there. One was institutional scholarships. And for those who don't know about the other scholarships that colleges give, they will find other ways to give you money a lot of times, but you may have to, like, like Sarah said, apply for it. Some of those things can be uh, honors programs. Honors programs are a great way to save money on college. And 
usually if you are accepted into an honors program, they may also ask you to write an essay or fill out a some sort of a, an application for an additional scholarship. If your student can apply, can be accepted into and can handle an honors program in college, that's a fabulous way to save some more money. The other thing is in high school, AP classes, advanced placement classes for some of the schools that have the baccalaureate programs. Those, if your student passes those classes, those tests at a specific level, and that differs from college to college, so you have to check on it. But if they pass those tests at a specific level, usually a three, four, or five, they can basically get out of having to take a general education class, a core class, which saves you money. When you look at the fact that a, a class costs between usually $1,200 and $6,000 across the, the gamut of different schools, private and public, uh, that's a lot of money saved. And the more that you can do that, the better. Now, a lot of colleges put a limit on how many how many classes you can waive that way or test out of that way. But even if you manage to do it for one or two classes, that's money saved. That's several thousand dollars saved. The other thing that you brought up was the idea of testing. I know we have a lot of these colleges that say, you know, they're test optional. I tell people test optional is not optional. Uh, more schools, they, they found that in the last two years, since we've come back from COVID, more colleges have accepted students who reported test scores, even if they weren't in their normal range or weren't high up in their, the, each school's particular range that they normally take for test scores, than they did students who did not report test scores, but even if they had a higher GPA. So reporting the test scores, as long as you're in the range that the college says they usually look at for test scores, really makes a difference. And like we said, a lot of times they're factoring into the merit aid, not always if it's a test optional school. But, you know, I thought that those were really good points, Sarah. Nino, from your experience, and I know you may have been with a different type of school, but did they... Did they look at test scores? Yeah, so um, there was there wasn't for our particular school. There wasn't uh, uh, the and the the barrier of entry was pretty low. Let's just put it that way. And so, no, they weren't necessarily looking at those things. But I wanted to touch on something else that you kind of started to mention that I wanted to just take a, a, a breath deeper uh, because it's a great way to save on costs when it comes to college. And that is, although the barrier to entry to the university I worked for was rather low, they would allow you to transfer um, between 50 and 75% of your degree in like either by bringing it from other schools or doing um, uh, college level work at the high school level, or even doing like CLEP and Dante's exams where they're, you're testing out. And so there was a vast opportunity at that particular school. And that might not be true for every school, but at that particular school, you could save as much as 75% of the cost of tuition just by doing some of these things. And it is th this concept of 
doing college level work at the high school level is one of the things that we're already talking to our daughter about. Again, she's only in eighth grade, but even at this early stage, we, uh, we actually, uh, went to a conference this, this summer where there was, there were, um, programs that would actually allow you to complete, complete a bachelor's degree while in high school. Now you Mm -hmm. have to be you have to be performing at a very high level, but it's like if these programs exist, it, it's at least worthwhile to look into them and 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 start to kind of figure out, you know, what would we need to do in order to do that? Because another, you know, earlier we were talking about how it doesn't much matter what school you go to. And the truth of the matter is the bachelor's degree at this point uh, where our society is has kind of replaced the high school diploma as like the the minimum for a job in in mm-hmm. in, in a cor- in the corporate world anyway right. right so as that corporate human resource person is going through whether it's digital or paper resumes they're looking for the degree and and if it has a degree it goes into the I will look at that closer in a minute pile and if it doesn't have a degree, it goes into the, I'm not going to even waste my time looking at this anymore pile. And so when I heard this about being able to, to complete a bachelor's degree while in high school, I'm like, wow, what a what a head start that would give somebody. Because if the master's degree is the thing that actually kind of separates you, then if I can save nearly all the costs uh, now on a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree and then send her to to graduate school, that'd be great. I, I have to look a little bit more into it. There's some some significant detail there, but I think it just goes to prove that there are so many opportunities in high school to set your student up very well for the merit aid, for um, testing out of certain classes, for bringing credits over, and just really getting a great head start on the on the process of completing a degree. Well, and to just tag on to what you said, I think one of the things that you're talking about is what they call dual credit, where you get high school credit for something, but you also get college credit. Yes. So it's not like you are a transfer student directly from a junior college or from another college in this instance. And this is the best way to work it because there are a lot of colleges out there now that will not consider you a first time freshman if you have any college credit from an actual college or university that was not given to you while you were a high school student. So that dual credit is also very, very important. Now, this is not to say that there aren't colleges who won't give you the first time freshman merit aid which is Mm. where you get most of it, if you have taken up to, say, 30 college units, but college credits, but you do have to be very, very careful. So I always encourage students to only take classes that they get high school credit for as well as college credit so that they can be sure they're going to be eligible for merit money Mm. at whatever college they want to go to. But the other side of all of this is Merit money is why I tell people you don't have to worry about how much money you make as a parent. Yes, you should still fill out the FAFSA because you have to do that for a lot of this merit aid. 
And it doesn't matter how much you make on most of this. It's what your student did in high school. So you can make $500,000 a year and your student can still save significant money on college. So, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate what you said there, Nina, Nino. Um, going back to Sarah, uh, when you were, you talked about your students having gotten some of this merit money. Uh, did you, did you, did your income factor into it at all in your minds? Were you at all concerned that your students wouldn't be able to pay for college because of your income? Or were you already aware that they could get this merit money? Um, you know, <clears throat> this is going to be a moment of confession for me um, because uh, I am divorced from their dad. And so we had to decide who's you know, who was filling out the FAFSAs. And we did talk about who made less money versus who made more money. And, um, you know, because we did assume that, um, uh, you know, income played a, a role in that. Uh, as it turned out, I won't go into the nitty gritty details, but my husband and I ended up filling out FAFSA and still do, you know, for, um, our daughter that's, that's still enrolled. But, um, we definitely believed that income played a factor, uh, in, in, um, financial aid and merit aid and in all of it. Right. And so we, uh, we tried to figure out how do we not fill out FAFSA? How do we, how do we make it so we don't have a lot of money showing? I mean, we did because we, uh, we definitely believe that. So I love that we're talking about it and kind of busting this myth out there, right? That um, the amount of money doesn't necessarily, um, it, it affects it, but it doesn't mean that your student can't receive any type of aid, right? Definitely. And I get a lot of parents who, like you, or how do we not fill out FAFSA? Or no, we don't want to fill out FAFSA because our students not going to apply, not going to qualify for aid anyway, or because their friends or co-workers or neighbors said, don't even bother. It's just going to hurt your student. My kid didn't get anything. Well, quite honestly, and this is probably a different, different conversation altogether. But it probably has to do with the fact that they didn't fill it out correctly and accidentally raised their expected family contribution, or they weren't thinking about the merit money, and so their student didn't have the opportunity to earn it because of the things that they did or didn't do in high school. So this is definitely an important conversation. Most parents, when I say merit money or merit aid or merit scholarships, they look at me and ask me to tell them what I'm talking about. So I think this is this is a big area for the parents to be educated about what they can do to help their students save money in college. And that is certainly one of those things that I did recognize uh, working at the university is and, and why I'm such a word snob now about like, what are we actually talking about? Right. Because when you're talking about federal student aid and you're talking about gift aid through the federal government, that is based on need. Right. So when you hear Pell Grant, ooh, did I qualify for a Pell Grant? A Pell Grant is money I'm not going to have to pay back to the federal government. And so that is gift aid. And that in merit aid is gift aid, money that you don't have to pay back. But they are coming from two very different sources mm -hmm. and they have two very different requirements. 
The federal government requires it to be needs-based. So if you are impoverished and you don't make a lot of money, we are going to make monies available to you. Versus merit aid, which is, to your point, Kelly, has nothing to do with whether you need it or don't from an income perspective. Like the word merit suggests, it's all about whether or not you earned it through the merit of what you did as a high school student and and as a tester. So did you score well? You know, did you participate in extracurricular activities? You know, these are the things that lead to that type of merit aid. And a lot of scholarships are merit-based, not needs-based. Now, some scholarships are Mm needs-based, but most scholarships are merit-based. And so all the more reason to have kids thinking about what is it that I want to do? Let me perform well in the classes that I are going to lead to the thing that I want to do later and being involved in extracurricular activities so that when they go to apply for these scholarships that are merit-based, they are more likely to win them because they merit winning. And I think you have summed it up perfectly because that is really how that's the difference and it also is how you the best way for you to save money on college just hands down absolutely i also think that uh applying for scholarships is a great way to pay for college but kelly we're going to ask you back for yet another episode in which we talk about truly paying for school. So we've talked mm-hmm. about all these great ways that we can save on uh, save money on college um, by uh, looking at right fit and by being uh, mindful of merit aid and how you can win that from the college. But there are some great ways to pay for, sco- uh, for college with fewer loans. Let me really clarify, with fewer loans, right? Um, Mm -hmm. we we don't want you to have to go into debt for this. So come and join us again, uh, listeners, as we bring Kelly back for part three and we dive into paying for college. Kelly, I want to thank you again for joining Sarah and I today. I think this was a fantastic conversation that really opened my eyes to some things. As, as I said, I have a 13 year old. I got to be looking forward to some of this stuff. And I, I had an awareness. I, more than awareness, but you've even opened my eyes to things that I had not yet considered. So thank you again for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. I've had a great time on on the, the podcast. All right. Well, as always, we'll continue our conversation next time. Thank you for listening to the New Money Habits podcast brought to you by New Money Habits and Keeping Up with the Joneses Financial Coaching. Submit your questions to our host by emailing podcast at newmoneyhabits.com. Be sure to subscribe to be notified of future episodes. Join our growing group of like-minded people on Facebook and follow us on your favorite platform. Music provided by Summer School.